On Software Engineering Daily, we often discuss big data in terms of data engineering and data science. Data engineering is the infrastructure and pipelines that handle massive amounts of data and puts that data into a data lake. With a data infrastructure in place, a data scientist can study the data and take action on it. A data scientist can also create visualizations, which is the subject of today's episode. Aurelia Mosier has a specialty in mapping and data visualization. Today, we discuss how to create effective visualizations of our data and the tools that can be used to collect and present our data. Whether you work at the New York Times or a small tech company, whether you're a data scientist, a business analyst, or a marketer, data visualizations are important because data visualizations can be used to communicate important trends across an organization. Aurelia Moser is a community lead at the Mozilla Foundation. She has a specialty in mapping and data visualization, and she will be speaking at the upcoming Strata Plus Hadoop conference in San Jose. Aurelia, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. Before you worked as a software developer, you spent time working on data visualizations for the purpose of journalism, although I, I realized that there was software vi- software development in that role. Um, But this is a great place to start our conversation because news is a prime example of how new visualization techniques and increased volumes of data, better software, all these things can lead to better products, in this case, news. So what is going on at the intersection of journalism and technology? Oh, I think a lot of development work and a lot of, like you said, a lot of experimentation in the web development space, at least. Uh, A lot of libraries, too. People don't realize a lot of JavaScript libraries came out of newsrooms. So the New York Times, like Backbone, um, Underscore, uh, a few things that people outside of the journalism world use uh, actually started in journalism. And I think... uh, Journalism is doing a lot of things with data visualization, like New York Times especially is putting out a lot of awesome data visualizations. There's groups like Vox and 538 that are basing almost all of their um, news output on data-driven journalism, which I think is great. Um, But they're also... uh, Journalism, I think, is a really good space to build skills as a developer. I think um, there's a lot of emphasis on being able to uh, ascribe to really compressed timelines uh, and being able to work on short sprints um, very agilely. So uh, I I really appreciated working in journalism. There were always new topics to explore. You get a new assignment every few weeks. Uh, You're jumping around all the time and you feel very motivated to try new and experimental um, approaches to how to, how to visualize the information and how to incorporate it into a larger narrative because you get to work with material that's so interesting. So you get to work with things that are, you know, fed to you through investigative reporters who are on the ground in other places. You get to work on uh, stories that are maybe outside of your beat or your domain, but are really exciting and it's fun to switch it up. So, um, so yeah, I'm not sure if that addressed everything of your question, but um, no, it absolutely does. One thing I'm curious about is how how do news organizations organize? their data scientists and engineers because a lot of a lot of shows we've done you know they're in, they're about engineering organizations or engineers working with other engineers 
How do journalists and data scientists and software engineers work together? All right, that's a good question. I think it depends on the newsroom, actually. Some newsrooms don't have the budget to have a real compartmentalization of different tasks. So before I worked in news, I worked at a tech company, and we had a DevOps team that did all our deployment stuff. And I just did front-end things, and I worked with back-end engineers to do more of the back-end things. Um, But there isn't so much of that breakdown in journalism. Sometimes you are the developer, and that means you do everything. <laughs> and I think everyone's had experience with that, especially if you've worked in the stuff, uh, like the startup space. You're used to kind of wearing many hats. But I think it's especially true in journalism. Um, a lot of journalists are learning to code. Those who haven't already, you know, weren't software developers at some point or, or didn't have formal training in computer science. Um, so there's a fair uh, distribution of knowledge in um, web scripting languages and front-end programming. Um, a lot of designers, too. Uh, I, I rarely worked with designers who didn't know how to mark up their own designs. Um, so there's a lot of knowledge in front-end, I think, uh, less so in, in back-end. And often those people that are hired with that specialty uh, are pretty strapped between projects. Uh, mm. DevOps is a really underappreciated department. I think it, it's probably true in a lot of things, but especially in journalism, because people don't really understand uh, the complexity of you know, supporting uh, projects that are going to be viewed by a million people maybe as soon as they launch or election day projects uh, where suddenly everybody's visiting the site and everything has to be perfect and up and has to be working and the data pipeline has to be constantly streaming and downtime is, um, I mean, you, st- you experience those stresses outside of the news world, uh, but your audience sometimes is a bit more uh, empathetic, I think, when they know that it's a highly technical project. But I think people visit news sources online and they don't understand all of um, the, the technical um, muscle and capacity behind it. So they're less sympathetic to when the site goes down or when it's not loading or uh, when there's incongruencies and in how things are described in the text and uh, the visualization that partners with it. So uh, it's a lot of pressure. Okay, that's fascinating. What did you learn about the, the DevOps of a journalism organization? Oh, well, um, we, so when I worked in news, I worked with an organization that helps journalists. So I worked with Ushahidi and uh, Internews Kenya. So Internews Kenya in East Africa did a lot of uh, training materials that they would train journalists in how to use security software to protect their sources and in how to do data visualization for their projects. Um, but Ushahidi, in the same token, uh, built a uh, mapping software for journalists to use to collect on-the-ground stories uh, to support their articles. So I didn't get to work uh, in a newsroom like the New York Times or ProPublica or some of these other uh, groups that a lot of the fellows who were affiliated with my same program at Mozilla uh. did. So I, I, I only heard their stories and then kind of the horror stories from my friends who are on DevOps teams about what it's like to work in the news world. Ah, uh. It can be intense. Okay, fascinating. So th- there are a number of news organizations that are trying to make a shift to having a greater focus on technology and and data. Do you have any advice for how these types of organizations can make that shift? Yeah, um, I guess. I, I mean, I think the groups that I mentioned before, Vox and 538, that are kind of pop-up shops doing great work in the data journalism area, um, are already kind of piloting this, but they're 
they're working in a more of a startup mentality, you know, small shop of people all focused on, on data visualization and data analysis and data science in general. Um, and it's harder for bigger orgs who are used to doing more traditional reporting um, to dedicate time and, and resources uh, to, to data visualization projects or, or data analysis. Um, but I think it usually works out pretty well when they partner with uh, groups that make tools to help journalists or to just help the general public visualize or analyze their data. So um, I've seen partnerships in the past with IPython notebooks so journalists can publish their analysis um, along with some visualizations that are created so people can see the code and then they could also see it paired with you know, the resulting visualizations. I've seen a lot of, um, like at CurdoDB when I worked there, uh, we had a lot of partnerships with news orgs and we would actually dedicate uh, engineering resources to building projects that we thought were particularly promising and awesome because it's good publicity for our company. And then it's also great for the journalists because they have some more technical muscle behind their projects. Um, so I think it usually works out well when they partner with third parties, um, because uh, most of the people who build tools would love to have a new story to showcase how their tool is useful. And most of the people um, working on the story, you know, have a lot of great data, but they might not necessarily know what to do with it. So, um, so yeah, uh, that's, that. that's okay. That sounds like a really synergistic relationship. So, uh, I want to talk about data visualization now that we've kind of glossed over maybe one mainstream use case for if these improved data visualization techniques. In the past, data visualization was mostly about presenting simple graphs and spreadsheet data in Excel, but it's expanded into a much bigger world within software one area within data visualization that you spend a lot of time on is mapping. So tell me about a recent example when mapping provided you with a useful visualization for your data. Um, okay. So I worked on a project a little while ago um, with CardoDB where we did a partnership with this group at GDELT, which is the Global Database of Events, Languages, and Tones. It's a Google project that was funded to collect all of the news media published and then subcategorize it and tag it um, and then build an API that would allow people to access those data and kind of understand, you know, pockets of the world where people are talking about terrorism in the formal media or pockets where they're talking about you know, some other topic and then compare that with social media um, discussions around those topics to see you know, what are citizens talking about uh, casually and then what is the formal media reporting on. Um, so they had this awesome API, but Nobody was using it because it's a fair amount of documentation to figure out how um, how to access and use all of the tags and data, and then um, how to parse through it, and also how to then visualize it into something that's meaningful and focus your analysis on something um, that's that's important to you. So we ended up working on a bunch of maps related uh, to that API, and that project was awesome, um, but mostly because after we've created these maps that would show like, okay, well, people are talking about pollution or there's a conference that's happening in this area and we can kind of analyze the discussion based on, you know, formal media and also social media. And when we made this sort of accessible GUI where people could search for terms and then it would map the terms immediately, you really got a sense of the heat map of, of topics and also like gap areas where, you know, the most people, 
the most coverage about uh, Ebola is happening outside of you know West Africa. So what does that say about our formal media or like um, certain places where something a topic or a civil war would not be covered at all in the local media, but would be over covered by external media, and that leads to you know your suspicion that maybe some of their claims or facts are a bit specious because no one's actually on the ground uh, investigating this. So it was a really interesting project and then for us. And then afterwards, uh, we got some publicity from uh, different media sources who wanted us to do particular analysis analyses on what interests them and what topics they wanted to explore. Um, so we started doing some more interesting machine learning on top of that to try to parse out, okay, well, uh, one journalist wanted to do an article on wildlife crime. So she said, okay, well, we want to uh, do some research on on poaching uh, that's published in the formal media. But poaching, if you're looking through any article, you know, published across all these different formal media outlets could mean poaching for a hire. It could mean poached eggs. <laughs> it could mean lots of different things that aren't related to killing animals. Um, so it was just a, it was an interesting challenge to try to write all the edge cases and figure out how we were going to, you know, write something that had, or write sort of an extension to the API that would give some integrity to the map that was created at the end. Um, so uh, that that was an awesome project. Um, and uh, I've also worked on a lot of different sensor data mapping projects, which are a bit more small scale because we were using um, uh, like Arduinos and little um, hardware packages that we were building ourselves and sort of deploying them in small environments. For Ushahidi, we worked in Tanzania on this project to study agricultural sustainability and um, farming techniques in a particular region of Tanzania. And so we distributed all these sensors and um, we also had people monitoring them. And then they had all this historical data from this group who had already been doing that um, so we converted their data, we matched it with ours, we tried to create this timeline showing, uh, or time series visualization of how, uh, what the values of the data that had been collected. So they were putting these at different water gauging stations on rivers and trying to see what the water flow rate was and what the temperature was and um, how much access to that kind of irrigation uh, different farms had in that area. And what we found in mapping it was that um, there were a lot of, um, there's always issues with data, especially data that's been collected since the 60s and 70s, because at some point someone had to transcribe that and uh, everybody yeah. ca collects it differently. And so there were a lot of data mismatch issues, but we found huge pockets of the different regions that the data was just useless or the values you know, had no units. And there were all these problems with the data. At the time that we were doing this project, the organization that we partnered with was looking for more funding from um, their their funder, the, the Gates Foundation. And so building this map really showed, okay, well, we need to not talk about this region because we don't have any good data to support the claims that are being made about how effective this project is. We need to figure out what's going wrong in this region. And those discussions only happened as a result of visualizing the information. That's fascinating. So, you know, you mentioned this sensor stuff. And mapping the real world is heavily influenced by the capabilities that we have with sensors in the real world. What what can you say about the state of IoT and and how Internet of Things uh, sensors how that affects the data driven mapping work that you do? Oh yeah, good question. Um, so I work with a group uh, that a few uh, friends of mine started called NodeBots. Um, 
and it's about developing scripting language libraries uh, that allow you to access Arduinos. So I could write JavaScript to an Arduino um, using Johnny5, which is one of the uh, JavaScript libraries that lets you do that. Um, and, and that's great because then web programmers have the ability to, um, to use hardware in their projects. Um, so I've been working on that for a while, and I've done a few projects uh, like the agricultural sustainability one, and then one that's a bit more close to my heart that uh, is about uh, mapping uh, data about bee colonies in certain communities and trying to study the environmental factors that affect how whether they grow or or die off um, because bees are dying globally and it's a it's kind of a big issue. But but anyway, aside from that, I work on kind of small scale hardware projects. So I'm not really into the indoor mapping space or the you know not all of my little hardware um, uh, devices connect and speak to each other. So it's not perhaps as sophisticated as some of my <laughs> engineering friends who work <sighs> in IoT. Um, but, uh, but I think the potential is exciting. I, I think um, there's some language around it that's a bit overambitious for what can be achieved, but um, it's kind of mm, like the semantic web. Ways? I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like the semantic web. Like there's a lot of people who've been talking about it for a while and some things are actually highly semantic on the web now. So I I guess I can't really say that anymore, but I felt like that conversation just sort of stagnated for a bit. And I think there's a lot of discussion about the, the potential for, um, internet of things to, to work, uh, like in connected fridges and having your whole, you know, home office, all of your devices talk to each other and everything, uh, everything works together in this sort of harmonious um, tech setup. Well, okay. So cer- certainly that is more vaporware-ish than, yeah. um, than is the, is the reality right now. But like, you know, you mentioned this, this example of, of putting sensors in, I think you said different waterways in Africa and yeah. collecting, collecting sensor data based off of that. That sounds like a very, uh, uh, like a, a actionable real world, use case for what we would call IOT. Yeah, totally. So, so, so I, yeah, I guess that was what I was more curious oh, about was okay. like, was like, yeah, it was like, you know, I, I recognize that there is a vaporware-ish sort of uh, conversation around IOT, certainly in America. Uh, and then there is some realistic uh, stuff going on with IOT, whether it's in Africa or uh, if it's in warehouses or something where they're, you know, loading lots of packages and stuff and it's this highly controlled environment. Um, I guess I was just wondering where uh, you have seen this actual, uh, this actually, you know, uh, um, affect uh, or, or drive, um, you know, uh, re- real world use cases or um, if there has been uh, stuff you've seen. But um, Sorry, I misinterpreted you before. Oh, no, no, it's fine. I think it. I think some of the most interesting stuff I've seen has actually been outside of the U.S. Um, and maybe that's because I don't attend a lot of IoT events or conferences or things outside of the small group that meets up for NodeBots. But um, the sensor data project in Tanzania was really interesting. The um, B analysis project that I started working on, actually, we started in in Buenos Aires in Argentina and in Latin America and a few different locations where they had beehives. And some of the resourcefulness of the people who will set up your sensor kits if you send them, um, you know, to different parts of those countries is actually really remarkable. And people are really excited about collecting those data because perhaps they're not so saturated um, with all of the well, data. What kinds, of, 
What kinds of sensors can detect bee activity? So beehives actually, uh, all the environmental sensors, so temperature, the weight of the beehive will determine population too. Uh, the mm-hmm. noise that they make can determine how happy or healthy they are. Um, so you can also do uh, audio sensors. Um, there's a lot of things, a lot of different environmental factors. Humidity uh, can also indicate um, how successful or long um, surviving the hive will be. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I was just kind of ambient things that I was collecting just to see how it would affect our community because um, there were some climate abnormalities in the area that I was in. So I thought, I wonder if that would kill them off or if they're very resilient in different locations too. When you compare data, those same environmental sensor setups, um, you can kind of see how certain environments really foster, you know, bee growth and health and how, uh, the weight of the hive goes down slowly so you can tell that the bees are dying off and they're not surviving and maybe, you know, Norway is not the best place for a beehive. Um, (laughs) But uh, so there's a lot you can tell from ambient sensors and they're also cheap too that you can make a really nice little starter kit for anyone and and send it out to them uh, for, for very low cost. We're kind of talking about the the data production side of things, and I'd like to kind of talk about the data ingestion and the uh, data processing, data visualization side of things. We, we've done a lot of shows about these backend architectures that grapple with giant influxes of data. So give me an idea of the interface between this giant volume of sensor data, you know, for example, for a beehive, you know, you could be taking readings, uh, you know, as often as you wanted to, and you could end up with basically as much data as you wanted to. So what is at the intersection of this, this data production, uh, I guess, in ingress point, and then the, the, uh, the egress and the, the processing and the visualization of that data? That's a good question. Um, because you're right, you could continuously take data readings. I think usually with the starter with the sensor kit for the beehives, I kind of just monitored it for a few days, tried to um, put it in graphite and you know some a few tools to visualize it, the preliminary readings, and see what was interesting. And then ultimately, I just kind of break it at, down into very human understandable. Um, chunks so people understand you know a reading every day or an average reading every week um, but they might not understand you know the utility of reading every second or they might not even be interested enough to go to a little website that has a you know a cubism js visualization of how it's changing over time you know they might not be interested in that they might just want to know okay this week out of the year these were the average readings the next week the they went down or what went down and what was bad so in translating it to visualizations it usually involves mapping or changing um the timestamps that you're dealing with to something that's human uh processable and the same was true for the sensor data for um uh, analyzing water flow rates in Tanzania. Like I, the format that they gave me for some of the earlier data sets was um, like uh, text files that actually uh, the naming conventions were all off for what, what particular station they referenced. It was kind of unclear at first uh, when the data was collected. Like they would say every two weeks, you know, go read the meter on this particular sensor set. And Sometimes people would do it on time. Sometimes there was no entry. Uh, the data was pretty messy. 
And so just finding, okay, well, I've established now that I'm going to take a reading from this week and then this week in the next month and then this week in the following month and just be consistent about what week I take. And regardless of how clear, consistent the data is, I'm just going to use that as my you know, starter set. And then from there, dive into maybe the more granular things if I decide that it's necessary to show um, ups and downs between those, those kind of milestones. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of massaging. I, I did a lot of massaging of those data and and translating them. There was a there were a few scripts that sort of processed the text files that I was receiving and put them into a more machine readable uh, format. And then um, and also cleaned out all of the empty null values. And sometimes too, people when they're manually entering data, right? They they sometimes enter entering units, which makes it a string and not a, a numerical value. So trying to figure out how, how to go through and clean all of that um, in an automated way is probably the first step uh, for me. And then, um, and then after that, trying to figure out what, what the general trends show, what points can I pull out the most significant values that a reader would be able to process. Do the front-end visualization tools have any problem keeping up with the volume of data? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, I mean, not for, I, I used, for, for the visualization of the Tanzania data, um, I, there was a map that showed all the gauging stations and you could select a particular station and then it would pull up a few charts and graphs based on the readings um, from that station. And I used uh, a more souped up version of high charts, which is a JavaScript library that lets you um, make a bunch of just charts and graphs, but it's called high stock and it's more for stock readings. Um, I've used that. Yeah, so, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Fun. It's really nice, but it's a bit faster than high charts because it's made to to read financial data, right? So yes. it was a bit uh, stronger. Um, so I, I did do that. I've done things, like I said, with graphite and cubism for more uh, granular time series. And I think those sometimes you have to search for a library that supports uh, you know more intense amounts of data. I, however, it in the newsroom and in, in journalism, you often work with CSVs. You know, your largest file will be maybe the largest amount of data you'll deal with is like election results. You don't really deal with huge Hadoop in- instances or <laughs> um, lo- lots and lots of data. Uh, so I deal I deal with a lot of small scale things. Um, mm. Yeah. So. so so let's let's talk more about the development of data visualization tools. You've said that developing good visualization software is about developing something that is as reflexive as your eyes. What do you mean by that quote? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So um, actually, what I'm speaking at Strata about is kind of related to using sensors as satellites and satellite captures like of the world can be stitched together into a really, you know, authentic view, just because they're so uh, detailed compared to some abstract, you know, data visualization of a map, for example. Um, And I think when I think about building things for the web, I often try to make something that's, um, that at least strives to be as complicated as as your eyes, um, mostly because your eyes have some of the most advanced compression algorithms known to man, right? And they're they're instantaneous. Like you look at, if you have good vision, at least, I mean, provided you don't have poor vision, um, you can look at something or a 3D environment and automatically prioritize and, and reprocess it and understand colors, understand depth, understand where you should be focusing your vision. All of those things happen so quickly. And with 
data visualizations, there's usually some kind of lag, right? There's a a load time. Um, you'll have like a scrolly wheel for waiting while something loads after you click a filter. Um, even when you're using a web map, right, you have tiles that are loading. So those need to be stitched together. And if you scroll too fast, you can see the tiles load. So um, you kind of see how it's not uh, actually having the world in the palm of your hand. It's just a, a, a browser view of the world. And if you scroll too fast, you you run off the page. So um, so yeah, I think uh, trying to make the user's experience as as natural and as fast as possible makes them feel like they're they're really in the visualization and they really are immersed in it. Um, and that's kind of like what how how we operate when we see things in the real world. Okay, so you mentioned your Strata plus Hadoop talk, which is called Mapping the Matrix. Why is your talk called Mapping the Matrix? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, uh, I guess I love alliteration. Um, and then also I feel like maps are something that have kind of myriad definitions in different disciplines and uh, matrices are the same. Like maps have different definitions in, 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 in mathematics. They can mean like a smooth surface between manifolds. Uh, they're a data type in C++. Um, they're a tag in some scripting languages. They're also like a geo-representation of our world. So we might be familiar with more cartographic maps, and that's often what I talk about. Um, but people have also used maps to describe graph relations between entities, like in a character map in literature. Um, so the definitions are pretty myriad, and um, matrices are the same, right? They can be as abstract as uh, a situation or sort of substance within uh, which something kind of builds or originates or develops or is contained. Um, they can also be, uh, I think I'll get a lot of attention just for the film reference. I'm sure people will attend just wondering what it's about. <laughs> but also, I'm talking mostly about mapping scientific data and mapping satellite imagery. Um, and I'm talking about mapping things at both the subatomic level, level so doing like uh, chemical mapping exercises, which people used our software when I worked at CardoDB to build um, models for you know, subatomic interactions. Uh, they also used it for mapping um, with satellite imagery, mapping views of the world or our ter- terrestrial world, and then also uh, for mapping and geocoding things in space, so like things on Mars based on satellite imagery. So I'm, I'm working at all the sort of scales um, from subatomic to cosmic, and I thought it was appropriate to have a kind of large-scale talk title. What are the commonalities from from subatomic to satellite level uh, of the types of work that you that you would do when building an effective visualization? Hmm. Wow, that's a good point. Well, I guess uh, this is mostly talking about maps. So um, maps at their base are trying to relate two items um, to each other with some kind of reference or location, right? So you're geocoding your data on top of a base map. Um, but uh, I guess in any case, all of the, the maps you make, regardless of their scale, um, are kind of fictional representations of what you're trying to display, right? So we don't really know what things look like at the subatomic level. I mean, we can guess. We have some microscopic or even smaller imagery um, to suggest how things interact and how they work. Uh, but really when you're mapping something at that level, you're, you're building a model, um, like a guess, a best guess. And the same thing is true even when we map things that are larger scale, like mapping the world, right? Every projection is different. Um, people are always arguing about the integrity of certain projections. Um, 
you're really just looking at a 2D representation of what would otherwise be a 3D world, and that's always going to be a bit artificial. So I think the challenges in a lot of data visualizations are trying to make sure that um, that artistry and that artificialness does not get in the way of clarity and explaining an idea with some kind of concise um, visual language. So as a mapper, I mean, are you trying to iron out the artifice though? Like it seems like as a mapper, you're trying to present a point. You're not necessarily trying to do it in the most realistic form of presentation. Yeah, totally. Um, Although I think some of the integrity of journalism, um, or at least the values of of being a journalist with integrity, that you should try to maximally represent things with the most authenticity, um, is still true for data visualization. Mm -hmm. you're, You're not trying to fool people into your agenda necessarily or your perspective, you're trying to honestly display the data and say like, well, this is what I've observed about what is being displayed here, but you shouldn't notice anything that's particularly biased in the representation. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, um, hmm, okay. So, so I was reading about the talk that you were going to give at Stratopolis Hadoop, and there was this other quote from you that said, Sometimes the tools to build maps can be as obscure as the data that we are trying to parse. What do you mean by that quote? So I think a lot of people are are very intimidated by data and they kind of use visualization as a way to process it and make it a bit more manageable. Um, so the data itself can be kind of obscure to you, especially if you have a lot of it. Um, and then sometimes the tools that we make f- to process the data, the documentation is really bad. Um, and there's just there's still a barrier to entry. So you journalists, at least, who are trying to figure out how to work on deadline have to kind of parse their time between, okay, do I teach myself this tool that's supposed to help me process these data? Or do I just, you know, go through it myself manually and, and don't use any kind of automation because um, at least I'll understand what's there and I can get in, dig into the data right away and not have this, this barrier to entry where I have to learn a new tool first. Um, I think one thing that we really worked hard on and, and kind of still struggled with at the end when I, um, before I, I left CredoDB was making documentation that made it easy for people. Um, and it's, it's always really hard to do that when you're building tools. Um, it's really hard to put yourself in the mind of your users and say, okay, well, not everyone is going to spend all day every day with this, uh, <laughs> with this library like I am. Not everyone's going to understand it. How do I make it accessible uh, to the audience that I want to solicit? And um, yeah, so I, I think both are, are important considerations. Interesting. Okay, so these days you are working at Mozilla. What kinds of tools are you helping to develop at Mozilla? Uh, Yeah, so I work on the Open Science team, which is an appendage of the Mozilla Foundation that does outreach not to journalists like I like I worked on before, but to scientists um, who are interested in open sourcing their research or learning about how to safely open source their data and all of the software that they write to process their data. So we develop a lot of tools that um, are for that purpose, for both like training um, scientists. So we have a lot of training materials on how uh, to choose a particular license or what to do with certain data sets, how to clean them so that they're appropriate for release, or what kind of platforms should you use for releasing both your papers and the data in tandem with that. Then we also do um, kind of smaller projects like Collaborate, which is a uh, an extension of GitHub that pulls scientific projects into um, this larger 
scientific um, community space where other scientists can join your initiative on a particular open source project. And then um, you can track and promote it in our community at Mozilla. Um, so, so we work on that. Uh, we also work on study groups, which are kind of academic. Um, it's a Git repo that lets people set up a quick, easy website for organizing a study group on their campus related to science and open science. And then we have all this curriculum that they can then fork and version and add back into our library and repository of different uh, curriculum tools. Um, and then we also have a fellows program where we fund postdoctoral candidates in the sciences or in the data sciences to work on a few projects for 10 months and get funding from Mozilla to do that. So we have a few. We have one in Cambridge. We have one in Vancouver. Uh, we have one in the Midwest and uh, one closer to home here in New York. And they're all doing different scientific disciplines and different topics. But um, one of them right now is working on a tool called SlideWinder that allows uh, scientists to fork each other's slide decks and kind of mix and match and remix uh, different talk material, but while also citing the original um, uh, like digital object that they created when they open sourced their slides. And then another one is working on this tool for creatives for science um, that brings a bunch of designers into the scientific community and allows them to easily kind of make comments on uh, scientific papers or in visual representations that scientists create because scientists are notorious for not being very good at data visualization or at least creating kind of boring graphs or um, slide presentations that are, you know, in Comic Sans and kind of unattractive. So um, this is a tool to kind of marry uh, the designer community with the scientific community. Um, and then we do a lot of fun, random pop-up projects. Like uh, we have a, a site, or I just bought the domain for openscience.lol because I found out you could buy .lol domains. Oh, oh no way. Way. <laughs> it sent me down a rabbit hole of buying all these .lol domains. <laughs> but How expensive are they? Oh, uh, they're like, I want to say it was like 35 or 39. It wasn't too bad. Hmm. Um, it's a worth, it's worth like buying your name or something. I don't know, whatever is an important topic for you, but we're going to make a, a little myth, myth busting site that showcases a bunch of, um, scientific discoveries or, or things that have been subsequently debunked or myths about, um, if you open source your research, you know, what will happen, uh, to it, or will someone scoop you? And we're going to try to debunk some of those myths. So people are more enthusiastic about open sourcing their research. Huh. Okay. That that has piqued my interest. What are? Do, I mean, I, I've heard this paranoia in the about the academic community, the scooping thing. Uh, so is that is that a fallacy? Do you, does scooping not actually occur? No, it does. Um, I think there there's. I just read an article of. I think actually, I didn't just read it. It was about a year ago. Someone wrote an article about um, the phenomenon of simultaneity in scientific discovery and how often there are at least three people in the world thinking the exact same thing at the exact same time. And it's a strange, you know, coincidence. It really has nothing to do with them, you know, scooping each other, but ideas tend to emerge in, in clusters um, at the same time in history. So uh, I'm not sure a lot of the com competition could even be helped if, if scientists maintained, you know, the closure on all of their projects. Um, but I think it's starting to pick up in, in at least in our community and um, in science, like scientific uh, or academic institutions associated with the sciences now. I know like the university, uh, I think Penn State or maybe it's the University of Pennsylvania, 
just um, made it a, a rule that when they're hiring professors in the sciences, they have to come prepared with an open science approach or statement to what they would do about open source science research because they're enthusiastic about soliciting faculty that are really pro open science. So I think it's building, you know, people are a little less scared about it. Um, but there are also tools like Mendeley and, and Figshare that allow you to share your scientific papers and, and submit them for peer review in a community. So it's opening up, but there's still a lot of stigma to, you know, if I reveal that I'm working on this idea, someone's going to find better data and they're going <laughs> to do more research and publish faster. Um, so lots of yeah, egos. I'm really, really glad I'm not an academia. <laughs> uh, well, well, as, as any frequent listeners already know, um, so it's so a zero sum, but that, that simultaneity thing that you mentioned, that's, uh, th- the most recent, uh, instance of that, that I heard about, I listened to this planet money episode about the, the origin of those hoverboards, you know, the, oh, the yeah. one wheeled electronic gyroscopic balancing things. Uh, and apparently there's no single creator of that. It was like, a one of these, I mean, there is one guy who may have been the original inventor, but it, it seems like it was one of these simultaneous invention sort of things. Everybody saw all at once, every every factory in Shenzhen saw all at once that you could build these things, and then they started building them. Um, so it's pretty interesting. So um, I, I'd like to to um, you know begin drawing to a close, uh, but well, I'd, I'd like to spend some time talking about the broader cultural interest uh, uh, issues that you're interested in you're, you're part of a program called girl develop it which is a, uh, a program I think is it's uh, based out of New York and what are you doing as part of girl develop it uh, yeah so a few years ago uh, two friends of mine started it um, one Sarah chips who's a developer in the JavaScript community and um, and her friend Vanessa uh, started who Vanessa also worked she worked in, in finance and like programming for finance software um, but uh, Vanessa Hurst is still involved with the girl development project too but when they both got CTO jobs at, at other companies they asked if I wanted to move up from TAing classes to just helping out so girl develop it um, as a preface, does uh, we build curriculum, open source curriculum to teach women how to code, but also to teach anyone how to code. Um, and we host classes, particularly for women um, after work and on the weekends uh, that introduce them to kind of the syntax of most of the web scripting languages and also um, some backend languages and some um, iOS and Android for, for mobile developers. So we have a pretty nice curriculum library now and several years after starting we're I think we're almost, oh no, we're 10 years old now. It's a bit crazy. Um, But uh, so we just started doing small classes in New York um, to kind of build a a nice, you know, very strong female community in programming. And um, also scripting languages were an easy entry point because people, or at least most of my friends and myself included, I only took a few classes in college that would even be relevant to what I do now. And um, most of the things I learned, I learned on the internet or I learned from other friends or I learned on the job when I was expected to do something and just had to jump in and read some documentation and learn it. So um, so it was an easy entry point because a lot of, uh, a lot of JavaScript and, and, and web programming is, is very visual and people get the kind of satisfaction of refreshing the page after they wrote something and it, it changes or even just going to a page and opening up, um, 
you know, your console or, or um, and editing the CSS and seeing how the page changes is, is really satisfying. So we got a lot of students in by showing them sort of that visual component and then they stuck around to, to learn more. And then after that, um, some of them moved on to boot camps or they became developers themselves. Um, so now the project has 48 chapters in the U.S. and we're pretty big. Um, we have 8,000. Oh, wow, that is quite big. Yeah, we have 8,000 members in New York, um, female developers and former students and teachers as well. Um, so, so yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. So I do a lot of logistics now. Um, I do a lot of curriculum review and curriculum development. And then I also plan classes. I teach some classes. I just wrapped up a class on Meteor JS. Um, or like we also do introductions to frameworks and libraries too for our more advanced students. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what that project's about. Yeah. Meteors, Meteors a great project. Um, and I think it's like, I was talking to this, talking about this with my, my brother earlier, uh, the, it's kind of like the closest thing that JavaScript has to Rails, I think. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel a little bit timid even teaching it sometimes because I'm, I'm always worried that if you teach too much magic, people don't learn the basics. You know, they don't know why something is working. They just know that the documentation said it should work that way. And some things are so awesome, like the way it handles OAuth and how you have to do very little <laughs> for some of that setup, which can be sometimes a nightmare <laughs> to set up. Um, but, but then sometimes I'm like, oh, I shouldn't teach these new students a framework because what if, you know, what if they don't understand a lot of the basics? I, I don't know. Well, you know, I think this is one of these things. I think the more magic, the better. Like the more black box magic <laughs> does nat- does things for you, the better. Because, no, seriously, because like the thing that you're just worried about is the drop off. And as long as they don't drop off, eventually they'll figure out that, oh, this was black box magic and it's doing something under the hood more complicated and I need to figure out how it does that. But whenever you're doing any type of teaching of programming, programming my, my opinion is that it's just you're constantly worried about, are they going to drop off? So, uh, you know, on Software Engineering Daily, we we try to have an ongoing conversation about the issues around gender inequality in tech. And given that you're part of an organization called Girl Develop It that's 10 years old, uh, I think you're someone that's worth asking about this. I saw a statistic recently that said 60% of women in tech reported being sexually harassed. Um... And I'm assuming you're okay talking about this stuff, but from where you stand, is the gender inequality situation improving? Um, Yeah, that's a tough question. I think it's really hard to speak from any position that isn't your own. Um, And I've I've had like a lot of luck, I think, in in the tech community. Um, I always felt very challenged and interested and engaged and didn't really have a lot of problems personally, but I'm also very good at shutting people down <laughs> verbally if they give me any trouble. Um, so uh, I, I'm sure the statistic is, is true, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I've always kind of seen it um, as, I, I mean, I, I worked in chemistry before I, I did web programming. So there also weren't a lot of ladies. And <laughs> I'm kind of very used to it. So I'm not really um, upset or intimidated by it. I think one thing that is getting better is that I see a lot more women at things. Um, so I guess that's a, that's a strange metric to judge um, something that's virtual, right? By Or a community that's mostly virtual by saying, well, I see people in, in person at conferences, but um, 
but there's a lot of androgyny on, on the web and you don't really know where people are coming from. So it's really hard to assess that community and really understand uh, what's going on until you go to a conference like Oscon or Serata or something. And then mm. you see, okay, well, there are, you know, five women speaking or maybe, you know, they take a picture with all of the women at Oscon and there's only 20 and you're like, wow, I never realized how few. But then you look at pictures from years ago and there were only two, right? So now I think things are getting better and I, I feel like um, a lot of my talks are, are well received. I never have a lot of problems with people um, being uh, judgy or presumptuous about how I got a talk or whether it was some kind of you know affirmative action on the part of filling a quota at, for women at a conference. I, I feel like the community uh, appreciates um, a diversity of speakers and a diversity of contributors. And, um, and I've been fortunate enough to experience that side of it. So um, I think do you, do, you feel, do you do you feel strongly motivated to do something about the imbalance? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming I, I understand that you you know you you feel you you've gotten lucky, but but you uh, you also aff- affirmed that you feel the statistic is realistic. Uh, the sixty percent of women reporting in tech reporting being sexually harassed. Do you do you feel an obligation or? a compulsion to try to to reverse the course or or is this more of like a do you do you see it more of as a so, something that you approach passively that will change over time or well i certainly haven't had any impulses to sexually harass men at conferences <laughs> like i've never had the reverse impulse exactly reverse but i do think that that, that that's that's not what i meant in, in case in case the listeners are unclear that is not what i meant <laughs> but i think uh I do have a, a, I mean, it, it's sometimes stressful when you're at at something where you're, you're you realize that you're suddenly representing your gender, and you think, oh, if I I can't ask a question because if it turns out it's a dumb question, then everyone will say, oh, it's like that XKCD comic where you know if you're if you a woman oh, makes a mistake yeah. in math, you know, then it's assumed that it's because she's a girl and she doesn't know how to do math. It's not because oh, you're an idiot, you just don't know how to do math. Um, so. I think the same is true. Like there's a lot of, sometimes there's a lot of stress and intimidation about making sure that you're always on point because you feel like you're going to be the representative for, you know, your audience of, of your gender. And, and that, that pressure is, is kind of stressful. And, and I do feel a lot of um, extra personal pressure to, to maintain our reputation as good contributors to the community and um, as intelligent human beings. And, um, so, so I think I, I do feel that uh, kind of pressure. And I also feel a lot – I enjoy very much mentoring a lot of young women in programming. And I find that I notice patterns in, in their own insecurities. And um, I'm pretty receptive to it now. So uh, I run a lot of like little uh, volunteer mentorship programs and like code review sessions. And um, we, we have them at Girl Develop It too. We have code review um, and coffee sessions where people can come in and, and partner with a more experienced developer and learn about what's wrong with their code or even fix their resume or prepare themselves for a technical interview. Like I, I really, I really enjoy doing that. And the mentorship part I think is really important for, for minorities in tech. So we've talked some about media in this conversation and how to present findings, how to present data. Um, Software Engineering Daily is a media organization, and I'm always curious, how how can we better approach this issue, the, the issue of women in tech? Is there a particular angle to take? Is there a particular underreported um, you know, uh, side of this or... Um, what what are some you know 
what would you like to see light shined on in the in the area of women in tech? Hmm, that's a that's a good question. I think I wish there was more public research about women-owned companies and women-run um, shops. Like at the science lab, we always get emails uh, from you know male scientists who will say, "Oh, dear sir, you know," and and. And we're four women who work. We're two software engineers and and two women who are scientists. So it's very strange that we're always like, well, no, actually, there are no sirs. Um, but but that's because we also don't publicize it too much. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, lack of publication around women who you know start companies and and are actually the CEOs of tech companies or are working. And maybe there's a there's a paucity of them, and there aren't a lot. But I would love to see more of that because I think it's very motivating to hear from from women who. Um, who are really piloting a lot of things. Like I know Vanessa, for example, she started this group called Developers for Good and then Code Montage and got a bunch of uh, funding um, from various like big tech funders in, in San Francisco to start a project that I don't think anyone even knows she leads because uh, she kind of downplays her own role in it. Um, so, so yeah, I'd like to see more of that. Um, I think a lot of attention is put on, oh, wow, people are abused really horribly at some conferences. And when people, when young people get drunk, you know, young men will say inappropriate things sometimes. And that's, that happens. And it's really unfortunate. But I think a lot of media attention is put on um, unfortunate uh, trolling and not on, okay, well, where are the women? What are they doing? Are they contributing? And can we highlight what they're contributing? Yeah, that, that's the definitely the conclusion that I've come to so far is, um, Try to try to highlight the tech aspects of it rather than the women aspect of it. And the women aspect of it is sort of obvious and springs out of the fact that you're interviewing somebody who is a woman in tech. Um, anyway, well, uh, Aurelia, thanks for coming out of Software Engineering Daily. It's been super interesting talking to you. Uh, I look forward to seeing your talk at Strata and uh, and keep up the keep up the awesome work. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah.